So uh, welcome everyone. And this is our um, first evening talk, the Convergence Retreat. And I want to first, just uh, first and foremost, uh, congratulate everyone. And can you all hear me okay? Yeah. So I want to congratulate you um, completing a first day of practice. And um, there's a, a Selenese monk, his name is Bhante Gunaratana. He actually wrote a very beautiful book called Mindfulness in Plain English. And he speaks about that the practice um, that involves a certain type of gumption. And I, I like that word, gumption. It's, it takes, you know, it, it's in John Kabat-Zinn, I think we've heard him say it's not for the faint of heart. But there's a certain type of gumption to, to sit with ourselves that takes a sense of some courage and vulnerability. And so I, I just want to acknowledge that. And um, actually, Bhante Gunaratana also has a kind of a description when we begin the practice and actually as it continues as well. But he says that somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. <laughs> and that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem, he says. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way, but perhaps you just never noticed. It's words of comfort. No problem, you're not any crazier than you were yesterday. But let this um, let us not be deceived. And Hafiz, he writes in this uh, poem called For Three Days, mm -hmm. that not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days in your closet, that would do it. <laughs> and that means not leaving. And you better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches and you better get yourself a chamber pot. That's a toilet. And no reading, uh-uh, no writing poems, no artwork, no painting, no cheating. Let's aim for the high 360-degree detox. However, the sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated. But dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. But we might very sincerely be asking ourselves, where's the ruby? I mean, I've been sitting all day long, and <laughs> my mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling out of control. Where's the ruby? <laughs> you know, and when we look into the, the classroom of MBSR, people come back from week number two or any mindfulness-based approach, you come back after a week of practice, and uh, we'll hear comments like this. My mind's wandering all over the place. I'm falling asleep. I'm consumed by this and by that. So I want to just... Uh, tonight at first speak about some of the challenges that uh, I trust that some of us have been living with today and and that are normal to meditation practice. So I want to first speak about this. This is very practical for our own practice and of course those of us 
that are aspiring to teach or teaching any of the mindfulness-based approaches, no doubt we will be coming across this in the classroom. And I want to also speak a little bit about our theme of convergence and, um, and what brings us into the practice. In, um, in the classical Buddhism, it's spoken that if you meditate, you will, from time to time, encounter challenges, hindrances, that which hinders the practice, uh, that hinders the ability to steady the mind. And actually, when I first came across this, actually, rather than it being bad news, to me, it was actually incredibly good news, like, wow someone's actually describing some of the map that's been in my own experience because I know about my mind being this uh, raving madhouse barreling out of control down the hill and so forth and so I first of all find it very comforting to know it's very normalizing to know that when we practice there's times where we may be consumed with distractions things that are challenging within our practice and so I want to just name and acknowledge that. And the classical five, and I think that we can relate to them, is wanting mind, not wanting mind, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt. Anybody have any visitations today? Yeah. Sometimes we speak of the first couple days of practice. A friend of mine coined this, though she probably got it from someone else because we're all getting it from everyone else. But it described that the first couple of days of practice is like being in a swamp. And it's kind of swamp-like, and it's kind of going through quicksand, and it's sleepy, it's tiring, it's restless, it's doubting, it's wanting, it's not wanting. So it's kind of like a swamp-like experience. And perhaps um, um, you know a little bit about the swamp firsthand today. Perhaps within the swamp, you're consumed with wanting mind, and perhaps you've already been dreaming about the next car you want to get. Oh, I'd love to get a, a Tesla. Oh, gosh, good mileage. And oh, the food. You know, this food's good here, but I can't wait till I go home and I go to my favorite restaurant. And oh, I can't wait to see my partner and make love. And I want to watch a television show. And well, you know, I think I'd like to just go for a hike somewhere. The mind can be at times just consumed with this daydreaming and fantasizing about what it wants. Anybody have any visitations today? Yeah. And of course, when this is wanting, there's this not wanting, aversion, not liking this food, not liking the person that's sitting near you that's breathing too loud or is fidgeting. It's too hot, it's too cold. too quiet, it's too loud. So the type of aversive quality that can arise while we practice. Any visitations today of aversion? Yeah. Restlessness, boredom. That's the other side, the good friend of restlessness is boredom. I wonder if anybody has actually ever died uh, of boredom while we're meditating, and when will he ring the bell? Is he, is, is he looking at the clock? I mean, will, will it ever ring? 
oftentimes the metaphor is given that the sense of restlessness is like a pacing tiger walking back and forth. It's a lot of unharnessed energy. And of course, the sleepiness, tired, you look at that zafu, and one part of you says, I should sit on it to meditate, and another deeper part says, I wish I could put my head on it <laughs> and go to sleep. And of course, sometimes the sleepiness can be related to that, you know, I just don't want to feel, I just don't want to be here. There can be many reasons that we get tired, we get sleepy, or sometimes known in the text in kind of an archaic word called sloth and torpor. It's a sense of sluggishness, not seeing clearly. Then, of course, there's doubt. Anybody experience doubt? Yeah. This is very normal. I actually find it very helpful to know that this is normal. Like, I don't know if there's, you know, I've heard that meditation is helpful for me, but, you know, I don't know if it'll be helpful to others. I mean, they say that meditation can actually make your brain more flexible and plastic, but my brain kind of feels like cement. <laughs> says that, you know, the studies say that my pain lessens, but I don't know. I'm having a lot of pain. Is this going to work for me? Anybody have doubt? You know about doubt? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really helpful to know that this is normal. This is so normal when we practice meditation. This is coming up directly in our own practices. It'll come up directly in those that we share this practice with. And again, in class number two, sleepiness, wandering mind, and you know, everyone thinks I'm going to start practicing mindfulness, everything's going to be wonderful, and then all of a sudden you realize the honeymoon is over. Your mind keeps on wandering. It's like, oh my gosh. You keep on walking up, you imagine you're walking up to the top of a, of a mountain, and five hours later you're still just as far. Like, am I going to get anywhere? So I just want to acknowledge the normalness of this. And at times we experience one hindrance, sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes what we call an MHA, a multiple hindrance attack. And there's <laughs> nothing worse than wanting, not wanting, restless, sleeping, and doubtful all at the same time. It's an MHA, it's bad news, when am I going to get out of here? Need the emergency room right now. <laughs> yeah. So again, these are called hindrances because they hinder the steadying of the mind. We're going off here, going off there, and our practice demands that we begin to see them and to know them and to begin to work with them. And sometimes it's offered in the teachings of the, what's called the simile of a clear lake and what obscures its clarity. And so the sense of Wanting, so this is kind of metaphorical, the sense of wanting, burning with wanting, is kind of like red day, red dye that colors over the water so you can't see through. The not wanting, the aversion is like boiling water and you can't see through as well. Sleepiness is like a thick layer of algae. Isn't that a beautiful description? A thick layer of algae. I can't see through to the water. Restlessness is like strong winds, choppy waters can't see through, and doubt all muddied up. It's just really muddied. So these things will happen to you when you meditate. These things will happen to your students in your classes. And it's important to say that this is not a huge problem 
as we begin to understand about these aspects of mind and how to work with them. That we can learn to extract the medicine, if you will. Sometimes it's even known that the certain type of poisons, you extract certain types of the poisons and it actually becomes part of the healing for an illness. The common ingredient in working with any of these hindrances or challenges of meditation practice, the first and primary ingredient is mindfulness itself. Once you're aware, we have a choice, and those of us that are studying the mindfulness-based approaches, this whole difference between mindful, mindless reactivity and mindful responding. <coughs> Once we become aware, we can respond in a much more constructive way. That beautiful quote by Viktor Frankl that between the stimulus and the response there is a space. And in that space lies freedom to choose. And once we become aware, we have a choice. Oh, here's wanting. One that's aware of the wanting or the not wanting or the restlessness or the doubt or the sleepiness. Once you become aware of this, it gives us an opportunity now to begin to work with it. In the regards to working with it, our practice invites us to get up close to it. There's a certain sense of intimacy that we're learning to have with ourselves, with what is challenging us to become intimate with it, to begin to acknowledge, oh, here's the sense of wanting or not wanting, to feel it, to investigate it. And perhaps the deeper part of the investigation is what is actually going on in this moment that it's fundamentally not measuring up, that I have determined this moment to not measure up to what I want. But the deeper question is what really underlying is really being longed for here? What is the deeper longing of this wanting for something or this pushing away of what's here or the sense of restlessness so difficult to be inside our skin, flesh, bones, and being. So with any of these challenges that come up in practice, there are opportunities for great learning, the wantings, the not wantings, to feel them, to know them, to feel what it feels like while you're experiencing the wanting or the not wanting how it feels in the body and mind, to begin to investigate it. And this is a very different quality, one moment unaware, just being consumed by it and ravished by it and reactive by it, to all of a sudden now becoming aware of it and becoming interested and beginning to learn from it. And it's a really shifting of our practice. It becomes a learning. Oh, inside this wanting or this not wanting is this deeper longing. I'm beginning to get deeper insight into or this place where I keep on falling asleep because I just don't want to feel and I'm beginning to get in touch with what I haven't wanted to feel and I'm beginning to feel and beginning to make contact, beginning to become intimate with my body and my mind and my heart. Working with sleep is something so common. Many of us that are begin a meditation practice 
after practicing it for a week or so, uh, come back into the classroom and have the practice going, as well as, of course, my mind wandering, is how much of the time that I've fallen asleep. And many of us are not even aware of just how tired we are until we stop. And I often have this fantasy in a seven-day retreat, but I haven't been able to convince my meditation teacher colleagues of this, but I have this fantasy like in Spirit Rock that on the first three or four days retreat, all there is is just mattresses on the floor. <laughs> and we just go to sleep for 20 hours a day. After about four, three or four days, wake up and then go into soft chairs and gradually end up on the mat, on the cushion. Because I think that was for, we come in so exhausted and we don't even know how tired we are until we begin to stop and to become present. At times we've lost touch with our own circadian or biorhythms. And so uh, this is important to realize how tired perhaps we are. And, and perhaps that can begin with this understanding and this insight, some choices. To, it's maybe un-American to say this, but maybe we can begin to do less. Or to use our day timer and to write in, this is the time to do nothing. I know these day timers, the calendar things are all about doing something but we can turn it around and write nothing. Some time for ourselves. Take care of ourselves. So whatever we're experiencing, the tiredness, the sleepiness, the wanting, the not wanting, the restlessness, this sense of unharnessed energy, to bring awareness, to feel it, to acknowledge it, to investigate the deeper longings inside that are fueling and driving that feeling of being unsettled. This unharnessed energy, how do we begin to harness it skillfully and wisely for our practice? And of course, doubt. Again, when we meet doubt to know it. Oh, here's doubt. And often doubt can be also connected with a sense of judgment that I'm not made of the right meditative stuff. It happens for other people. It may not happen for me, or I'm not good enough to meditate, I'm not worthy enough to meditate, or, you know, there's a whole spectrum of different judgments and opinions, doubts that come up about ourselves and our practice. And so important when we encounter the doubts to begin to become aware of them begin to investigate them, to perhaps begin to see these narratives, these stories that I tell myself that fuel my own sense of deficiency, inadequacy, shame, unworthiness, and so forth. And of course, when we become mindful and become aware of these stories and these narratives, we perhaps can begin to see that they're limited definitions of who we think we are. We can begin to transform our doubts and these stories that we tell ourselves into possibilities of more freedom. So I just wanted to offer a little bit about working with these challenges because I have a sense that they're alive in the room and I trust that there may still be visitations to come. And so what would it be like on the cushion later when you meet 
this mind that wants or doesn't want or is restless, sleepy, or filled with doubt, that you can bring awareness to it, begin to acknowledge it, begin to investigate it, and let's see what happens. And so I would like now to kind of churn the, the station a little bit to um, the sense of convergence, how the Dharma informs mindfulness-based approaches. And I'm using the word mindfulness-based approaches, or sometimes we use the word mindfulness-based interventions, because MBSR is part of a wider umbrella, if you will, of different mindfulness-based approaches. And Saki referred earlier to something that uh, John, um, that you know, John did not invent mindfulness. I think most of us know that here, but in the world, it's funny. Some people think that he kind of invented it. And of course, we know that it comes from a nearly 2,600-year-old tradition from ancient Buddhist meditative disciplines. <coughs> And I like to say that, it, I actually think it's fair to say that in that we are all in the midst of a cultural revolution and mindfulness is, a, is, is part of that. And when you think about it, I think never before in the history of the world has there been this type of a convergence with meditation and primarily mindfulness meditation with medicine, science, neuroscience, education, business, government. Yeah, I remember a few years ago um, at the International Conference at UMass Medical Center, they had a keynote speaker. I had never really heard of him yet. His name was Tim Ryan. He's a U.S. congressman. I think many of you are familiar with him. wrote A Mindful Nation. But this was beyond my imagination that I would ever think that I would have see a U.S. congressman at a mindfulness conference speaking about mindfulness and wanting to bring it into government of the world. I almost like had to pledge the allegiance, and I'm not necessarily the most uh, <laughs> political type of guy. But it's like, wow, like mindfulness is like incredibly going into the mainstream. It was really quite amazing to me. And you know, in these days and ages, this MBSR, MBCT. Mindfulness-based childbirth and parenting, MBCP, mindfulness-based relapse prevention, MBRP, awareness commitment therapy has mindfulness in it, dialectical behavioral therapy has mindfulness, there's mindfulness self-compassion, there's mindfulness uh, communication. And in your bedrooms, you have this thing from the Copper Beach Institute. So I just checked off all the different mindfulness things. that oh, You wouldn't find this 10 or 15 years ago. There's the mindful leader, how mindfulness meditation cultivates natural leadership talents. Now, I'm not endorsing any of these programs or trying to sell them to you. There's the mindful path to leadership. There's mindful self-compassion. There's mindful communication. There's immersion in mindfulness, the joy of living mindfully in the second half of life, autumn day of mindfulness, start here now, a guide to the practice of mindfulness meditation, introduction to mindfulness-based relapse prevention, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and uh, deepening your practice with an eight-week mindfulness program. <laughs> That's all just right here. Oh my gosh. There's a lot of mindfulness happening in the world. <laughs> and... Um, you know, the, the world is crying out to this. 
wanting this. And I really have so much you know, gratitude to John and to Saki and to all of our colleagues that have really been at the forefront of, of bringing mindfulness into the world and has tapped some type of a, a universal um, way of communicating these uh, heartfelt, gorgeous, beautiful, fantastic, amazing teachings into mainstream culture. It, it's really amazing, and you know, I myself and Saki and, and other colleagues, of course, have had the opportunity uh, these past number of years of traveling to different places in the world and meeting people that want to bring mindfulness to their people and culture. And you know, it gives me a lot of hope. And I don't want to be naive because you know, there's a lot to be done. But to know of this incredible interest of bringing more awareness and heart into the world gives me hope for our children. Yes, we have a lot of work to do. And so it also feels that it's very important in this exponential growth of mindfulness that we have these types of convergence retreats to help us to understand how these teachings in the Dharma inform all of the mindfulness-based approaches. I think many of you know that while uh, John Kabat-Zinn was sitting at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, it was there that that he was reflecting on his work, his life, and this practice of mindfulness, and this inspiration grew inside him of why not bring this into the world and into the mainstream. It's a beautiful moment of inspiration. And, and it would work at UMass Medical Center, and gosh, it would just kind of go all over the world. And sometimes I've had conversations with John, and he feels it's kind of like a deja vu, because in that moment of that inspiration, there was this image of it not only being applicable at UMass, but everywhere. And it's kind of amazing, so many years later, how that uh, mindfulness has become pervasive in so many places around the world. I also want to just acknowledge that as well as, of course, um, he experiencing the teachings found at the Insight Meditation Society, and I'll go into those in a moment, briefly. But there's also, of course, other underpinnings that I certainly want to acknowledge with MBSR. Yoga, the <coughs> Mahayana, Buddhist teachings of non-duality, and um, Avedja, stress psychology, stress physiology, experiential education. There's a number of different underpinnings within MBSR, but of course one of the, the major underpinnings is these teachings in Buddhist psychology, and namely if, and, uh, if you go on a, a regular insight meditation retreat, which I have the opportunity to offer quite a number of these in different places, very traditionally, what is one exposed to as far as the teachings? within an insight meditation retreat of a Vipassana retreat is the Four Noble Truths, the Three Marks of Existence, and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Mindfulness of the Body, Mindfulness of Feeling Tones, Mindfulness of the Mind States, and the Mindfulness of the Dharmas. And these are very traditional teachings that are taught in an insight meditation retreat. When I first read Full Catastrophe Living, and this was 
right after, um, not very shortly after it was published, and I was actually working at a stroke center as a counselor, working with people with strokes and Parkinson's, MS, various neurological and orthopedic conditions, and I was beginning because of my own prior practice of, of mindfulness meditation, was was teaching mindfulness at the stroke center. And I knew that it was very beneficial. People beginning to reconnect with sides of their body that were now paralyzed and bringing a sense of more connection, more a sense of integration in the relationship with their body living with a stroke. I also remember one elderly woman saying to me, this mindfulness stuff is keeping me out of the nursing home. And I said, what do you mean? And she goes, look at me, I'm an old lady, I've got to get up in the middle of the night and pee, and I've got to walk to the toilet. And so I'm aware of lifting, moving, placing. I'm walking mindfully, and thus I'm walking mindfully, I'm not going to end up falling and breaking my hip and ending up in a nursing home. And I would hear different anecdotal stories like this. So I was telling an ex-monk friend of mine and he said, well, you know, uh, there was this book just published, Full Catastrophe Living, I'm going to send it to you. And so he sent this to me, and I started reading it, and I couldn't believe, wow, this guy's created a whole mindfulness program uh, working with people with stress, pain, and illness. I want to do this. <laughs> and um, after I read it, I wrote John a letter thanking him so much for... Um, writing this book and let him know I was working at a stroke center. And about two weeks later, he called me. This was before 1993, the healing of the mind in Bill Moyers, where he was not so, um, after that point, he was kind of catapulted into a lot of uh, being known. But he called me and um, thanked me for my letter and invited me to uh, come to UMass Medical Center, where I came a couple months later and I met Saki and John and others and um, down in the basement <laughs> and uh, I was so blown away with what they're doing and they didn't even have any professional trainings but they knew that I had been practicing for a number of years so essentially uh, you know I had the book Full Catastrophe Living and they said you know well the, the, the curriculum's in there if you have any questions just give us a call good luck <laughs> so we've come a long way since that advice and um, but of course, it was different times. It was different times. Different times in that many of the people that were uh, beginning to teach mindfulness-based stress reduction were meditators and practicing very extensively. And as time has gone on, many people are now coming into the stream of wanting to teach mindfulness are coming from more a psychological or even sometimes a business or a health background without actually having the intensive training of mindfulness meditation practices and so the convergence retreats are really to help to us to understand how these teachings inform all of these mindfulness based approaches and when I read Full Catastrophe Living although I couldn't articulate it then now looking back on it many years later I knew right away that it contained the essence of the Dharma though I didn't know how to Articulate it. It's it took me years to articulate it, and I'm still learning from it as well. But but I, I really want to recognize that within this curriculum are these essential teachings. And during this retreat, we'll gradually begin to unpack them. I'm certainly not going to do tonight. I'm just going to kind of point to it, and we'll continue to go deeper. But I intuitively knew 
this was really this was really yes uh, as Saki had said a recontextualization not a decontextualization and I remember speaking with my my teacher who in, in, in Burmese uh, his name was Lindetsiero and remember letting him know about all of you know about the mindfulness-based stress reduction and you know his response was was very good whatever you can do to help alleviate suffering this is a good thing so there's such a kindliness and understanding whatever can be helpful to bring more heart bring more awareness bring more wisdom bring more compassion into the world this is a good thing So these mindfulness approaches, they really have struck a chord. And it, stri- it strikes a chord because it's addressing suffering. Pali, the word is dukkha. But the teachings that are offered in mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based approaches, um, are very down-to-earth, contemporary, filled with heart, with wisdom, and it's also supported by the rigors of science. And again, like never before in the history of the world, with these uh, science and studies to really help verify, in some ways, these very ancient uh, age-old wisdoms. And they have really served a very important purpose in bringing mindfulness into the mainstream. And at the same time, we come back to the practice. I can I can imagine telling my Seattle, you know that it does this to the brain, it does that to the brain? And he'd probably smile and he'd go, yeah, go back to your breath now. It's like, you know, because we can kind of get lost. And it's, it's almost like an addiction. Oh, do you know what it does to the brain and this and that? Yes, this is very important. But also coming back to the groundedness of our practice, our heart, our humility, our kindness, our compassion, our wisdom to see clearly where it is that we get stuck, where it is that we are pushing away from, Where is it that we're not seeing very clearly into things that's compounding our suffering and our pain? These are the hearts and the essence of these teachings. They're liberative teachings. And I actually just have a few quotations from John. This is from this article he wrote called Maps. And this is what he speaks about MBSR. And he says, from the very beginning, there was for me one primary and compelling reason for attempting to bring mindfulness into the mainstream of society, and that was to relieve suffering and catalyze greater compassion and wisdom in our lives and in our culture. It's a beautiful aspiration. And he goes on to say that mindfulness could be can be mainstreamed into healthcare and society and spread throughout the world and give rise to a global renaissance for the benefit of our world and to all sentient beings. He says, never was the intention for MBSR to exploit, fragment, or decontextualize the Dharma. That MBSR can be found upon the principle of, I may not pronounce this correctly in Greek, primin non seri, which is the Hippocratic Oath, to do no harm. And I think to me, one of the most uh, salient reasons of why mindfulness has become so popular is because it's, it is really beginning to address 
the suffering of our human condition. And it's very interesting, as you probably know, and if you don't know, that the first noble truth in the teachings of the Dharma is the noble truth of suffering. And the the word truth is actually kind of a very strong word, and I I actually prefer to call it like when, the story goes when the Buddha awakened, and so even that quality awakened had a realization into the nature of life. And so this first great realization that there is suffering. Of course, it doesn't end there. Some people think, oh, this is just a bummer type of philosophy. They're all talking all about suffering. But that's just the beginning. And there's the pathway, of course, to understanding its causes and to greater and greater freedom. But if we look at this first noble truth, the first realization of suffering, in our MBSS, MBR, MBSR class number one, you know, we go around the circle, what brings you here? What really brings you here? And what we hear is the first noble truth. I'm here because I have cancer. I'm here because I have heart disease. I'm here because I have chronic pain. I'm here because my partner died. I'm here because I've had some history of addiction. I have some depression. I have some anxiety. I have MS. I have a lot of chronic stress and pain in my life. And on and on it goes. This powerful teaching in that first class that unites us, that brings us together, the sense of community of the human condition it is so powerful when that first night when we hear first class what brings us here what really brings us here and what I love about these teachings within the Dharma is that these teachings begin with this awakening into the challenges the sufferings of life It said during the time of the Buddha, before he was the Buddha, his name was Siddhartha Gautama. And at the age of 29, up to that age of 29, he lived a very sheltered and very comfortable life. And his father had been kind of forewarned by some astrologer that, that prophesied he'll become a Buddha and his father did not want him to become a Buddha. His father wanted him to become a great king like himself. And so he purposely protected his son from seeing all of the sufferings of the world. But in his 29th year, Siddhartha went out on a little journey around the village and came across eventually four different signs that are sometimes known as, it's a very interesting term that they're called the heavenly messengers and the first heavenly messengers that he came across aging and the realization that he nor anyone else could escape from aging and the second heavenly messenger when he had the the realization upon seeing a person very ill that he nor anyone else could escape from illness And the third heavenly messengers is when he came across a corpse, a dead body, and realizing that no one could escape from death. Some might ask, how could he have not recognized these things? I mean, surely he was 29 years old, but sometimes when I take a look at my own life, like to really see that those things are happening takes a long time. There's an old Hindu proverb that says, everyone thinks everyone else is going to die, but not me. And 
we begin to recognize, whoa, th- this this is indeed going to happen, that I am of the nature to grow old, I am of the nature to be ill, I am the nature to die, I cannot escape from any of these conditions. It was this type of a very powerful realization, which is the human realization, which is the human predicament. No one can escape this. Yes, we have great advances in science, psychology, health, and everything, but the death rate has remained the same throughout history, and that is one per person. And and so we are here in this life. What is this life? I'm having anxiety, I'm dealing with illness, I'm dealing with pain. How do I work with my life? Well, the good news is that the fourth heavenly messenger was revealing that there's another way. We could say that mindfulness-based approaches in the broad sense is a fourth heavenly messenger for some people, like that there's another way that I could actually learn to live with this illness. I can actually work with reconciling even my own death, that I can die with more peace rather than fear, that I can learn to live my life with greater wisdom and compassion, perhaps being less caught in different things. And so this fourth heavenly messenger that the Buddha came across was a monk, someone that was dedicating their life to awakening. That's why I see so many times in our MBSR classes these teachings. How many of us have heard the experience, this has changed my life? It's quite amazing, and it happens a lot. And there's something about this messenger of the potentialities, the inner resources that are inside us, the possibilities that we can begin to deal with our lives in a much wiser way. This is the fourth heavenly messenger. I think each of us in our own lives can probably, if we sat with it, and maybe I'll invite you to to sit with it from time to time during this retreat, like who has been your four heavenly messengers that have come to visit you? Because obviously to come here and to be in this room, I'm trusting that it's not just that life is peachy, rosy, creamy, that you want to come here for a week and not talk to anyone and sit and experience a lot of pain and wandering mind. I think this things that brought us here, namely suffering, namely uh, wanting to understand more about our own hearts and workings of our mind and body that brings us to the cushion. And that's the same thing that brought me here. I I wouldn't be here if I didn't have any suffering. I'd be out playing baseball or whatever. But it was because of a lot of suffering in my life that brought me to the cushion. And, uh, you know, early in my life, um, I had a lot of death. I had a lot of death. By the time I was nine years old, I lost a brother, a best friend, a grandfather. And that left me in a place of deep confusion and despair and incredibly lost for many, many years. Vietnam War, the Beatles growing their hair long, the times were changing, and I was so confused and lost during those days. And eventually, I... After um, graduating high school and realizing my friends were going off to college, I ended up doing a a year of prep school and realizing, well, uh, maybe I should just go to college because I didn't want to work and fortunately had a high draft number. And I really got into downhill skiing, so I applied for college in northeastern Vermont, Linden State College in Lindenville. And first couple years, I majored in skiing, getting drunk and high, and trying to have girlfriends. 
And I wasn't so good on the last department. <coughs> but at the end of two years, I ended, ended up flunking out and being readmitted back on warning. And my mother desperately saying to me, Bobby, isn't there anything that, that would interest you? And um, I looked through the course catalog, and I saw something that perked my interest. It was called The Wisdom of the East, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. Of course, I could barely pronounce that. And I had no idea what it was about, but it said The Wisdom of the East. And th this is kind of funny to say, but it's really true that growing up, I, I, I loved going to Chinese restaurants. And I loved the food and the artwork. And even the vibes are very different with the waiters and waitresses and Howard Johnson's. I know I'm doing like these generalizations, but there was an association that I had inside me. There was something there that I was exposed to culturally that I had not been exposed to in my upbringing. And, and there was some type of a peaceful feeling there. And I, have, I had so much suffering of, that I realized later, like the loss of my brother, my best friend, my grandfather being picked on in school, and what is this life, and being so confused, there was a lot of suffering, and this was one glimmer of like, huh, there was, I'm, I'm going to take this class. I don't know what it's about, but I'm going to just, I didn't know what else to do. I didn't want to do reading, writing, arithmetic, and math, and science, or whatever. And so I went to this class, and I walked in, and my professor was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. <laughs> I never had a professor like this before. <laughs> Who is this guy? His name is Bill Jackson. And he began to talk, and I began to listen, because somehow the way that he talked, and the way that he held himself, and the type of genuineness and embodiedness of who he was, I began to realize this guy actually knows something. And I want to know what he knows. Bill was really my fourth heavenly messenger. That there was another way. He asked us to read the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, The Way of Life. I began reading the Tao and oh my gosh, I just couldn't believe someone had thought about life in this way. I never was exposed to this type of writing and thoughts about the world and life. Then it came to this epigram, number 47, that says, There's no need to look outside your window, for everything you need to know is inside you. And this was a very, very important message to me. It's taken me years to really understand that, that particular epigram was revealing to me that if I wanted to know something, I needed to begin to look inside here. Actually, one of the great Thai forest meditation masters of the Last century, Achan Shah, someone asked him, tell me which books to read of the Dharma, which books to read? And he goes like, this is the book to read. Right in here, that's the book. There's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. This really began my meditative journey many, many years ago. It's actually very nice that I, um, on Facebook, I, I found Bill Jackson. He retired, uh, he went on to Harvard, became a, a PhD in world religions and taught at Purdue and retired and I got a hold of him and, and it was so wonderful that I was able, I actually wrote and thanked him for what he was in my life for me. That, um, you know. 
And of course, I've had many other profound teachers, but this particular heavenly messenger awoken within me to begin to look inside my own heart. I trust you all have your own stories of what brought you to the cushion. Different things in life of people who you've lost, illnesses that you've lived with, those the inescapabilities of aging, illness, death, and also, perhaps for some of us here, it was MBSR was that fourth heavenly messenger, or another, or someone that was just kind to you, or maybe you didn't even know the person personally, but how they lived their life was so inspiring that it led you to another way. And you're here. You're here because of that. We've all been touched with these messengers to look more deeply into what is this life. So we'll continue to um, unpack these teachings and their applicability and ways they're expressed in the mindfulness-based approaches as the retreat unfolds. For now, I think I'll come to an end, and um, you know, we just want to um, recite a beautiful words from the Buddha, and then with a little poem. So he says that within this fathom-long body, and a fathom is a maritime measurement, about six feet. It says that within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, lies our world. Its beginning, its ending, its pathway to freedom is found within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions. And I just love this quote because this is the heart of this practice. Within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, lies our world. It's beginning, it's ending. The pathway to great freedom is within this fathom-long body. This is the foundations of mindfulness. We're diving into the body, diving into the mind, bringing awareness. What's here? And so I'll end with a reading from Patrick Overton. And so when I come to the edge of all the light that I know and I step off into the darkness of the unknown, I will trust one of two things to happen. I will find something to stand on or I will be taught to fly. When I come to the edge of all the light that I know and I step off into the darkness of the unknown, I will trust one of two things to happen. I will find something to stand on, or I will be taught to fly. And so perhaps as Hafiz said, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. So just for these last few minutes, just, just be with our breath and be with our hearts and Maybe I just want to invite you to reflect upon as a role of inspiration for this retreat. I know we've also reflected upon inspirations and dedications, so here's another one. Is to take a, take a pause and reflect upon some of your fourth heavenly messengers that brought you onto the path.
greater wisdom and heart, pointed that there's a way for wisdom and compassion. May all beings dwell with peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.